the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. So, welcome to episode 15 of the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean, joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, looking good. How's the form? It's grand, Gerard. 15, eh? That's, a, that's quite, a, quite a journey. Yeah, we're nearly done. Nearly done. Only a few after this. So, Will Glendinning, you have a, a conversation with him on the constitutional settlement, and it, it's a broad-ranging conversation. And I think it's important to say, you have a conversation with Will about his family at the start of this interview that really helps to set place the comments here. Yeah, Will's, um, I, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but I mean, Will's family story is not only interesting, but actually is also quite significant in a Northern Ireland context. And, and we listened to that explanation in, in a, a short while. And of course, you know, he's an interesting person with an interesting backstory. Yeah, yeah. And it's come to the conclusion, or seems to have reached a conclusion around when it comes to the All-Ireland conversation, the consent is going to be important here. But consent on an All-Ireland basis is, is what's going to be essential. Yeah, and, and he refers specifically to Seamus Mallon's thoughts um, in his book, uh, A Shared Home Place, uh, that was published shortly before Seamus Mallon died, mm. uh, talking about how you achieve perhaps not unity, not unanimity, not even consensus, but a level of acceptance. And, and these are all concepts that we need to struggle with as we move forward. And, and I thought it was very interesting the way that Will talked about the fact that although there was a settlement uh, a century ago, it wasn't a settled settlement. Yeah. It wasn't one that achieved acceptance. And actually, as we go forward, we have to do better next time. And, you know, he, he's quite critical that the Union estate did not reach out to provide acceptance to other communities um, just in the same way they feared that they wouldn't be accepted within uh, a, a single Irish unity state, unitary state. So it is, it, these, are, these are interesting concepts and interesting ideas. Yeah, and it was interesting too that Wall thinks that the, the time is right for difficult conversations and he says there's an appetite for difficult conversations. Not necessarily, if you like, at the, the upper echelons of political parties, but definitely at the community level in all communities. That's right. And in a sense, the Citizens' Assembly in the South have, have, have shown us a way in which you can have difficult conversations and that you can have some of these conversations without things sort of breaking up in horrible ways. They can actually be a way. And it's not just in Ireland. I mean, the same things happened in France as well, mm. you know, where you can have Citizens' Assemblies and have difficult conversations and actually reach outcomes that you might not have expected to beforehand. Yeah, okay. Well, let's hear from Will now. Okay, now just to put it in context, um, you're a former Alliance Party MLA for West Belfast back in the 1980s. You're a former member of the UDR in the 1970s. And also, uh, and this is important given that the podcasts are sponsored by the Community Relations Council, you're also a former Chief Executive of the Community Relations Council. Yeah, that's right. I worked for CRC from its conception in 1992 through to 2002. And also in the context of this conversation, um, I think it was your great-grandfather, was it, that was uh, Robert Glendening, the uh, Unionist MP back at the, uh, the beginning of the last century? He, he was, he was, a, he was a, a, um, a, a Liberal MP. He, in fact, was one of the people who was going to be made 
appear in the House of Lords to put through the Home Rule, uh, put through the people's budget. He was he was a supporter of armour of Balamani. So he was elected on what was called the the Russellite um, uh, manifesto, which was a reforming manifesto, and, there, and therefore, in fact, was in favour of Home Rule. So, uh, so it would be wrong to call him a unionist. I see that. No, uh, no, the... no, no, it'd be wrong to call him a unionist. My grandfather on the other side, that's my father's side. Yes. My grandfather on my mother's side was a unionist MP in Stormont. So, so, I, so there is a schism in our family. <laughs> right, OK. So on one side of the family, it was uh, a liberal in favour of home, un, uh, of home yeah, rule. And on the other side of the family, they were against home rule. And there was a marriage that occurred in the middle of the schism. Right, OK. That's, that's an interesting <laughs> history lesson for me. Um, but it creates an interesting perspective for yourself and your family's yeah. involvement in politics in Northern yeah. Ireland. Uh, and, and clearly, uh, I know from the conversations that you and I have had previously that, that you've had a, a deep consideration of the constitutional position of Northern Ireland. And, and tell, talk me through what, you, you've come to, what conclusion you've come to. Well, uh, during my time in politics, I always argued um, that the, that for the issue of consent, and that was one of the big things, the big advantages that I saw of the Good Friday Agreement was that the that the issue of consent was was uh, fully recognised, and indeed that that consent was an all Ireland consent. Um, and the, 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 the thing I think is that is important about about um, how I came to that argument was that I, I recognised that unionism saw itself as a minority in the island of Ireland, and that it was it was given the right to opt out or has been given the right to opt out of a, a, any all-Ireland structures. But the problem for unionism was um, that it never treated the minority in its own midst uh, with the generosity that it should have done. And therefore, it, having been given a right as a minority, it didn't give the minority in its midst um, the, 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 the rights that it should have given them and, and indeed uh, opposed the whole issues of equality all the way through um, the development of um, the, the um, fair employment and, and, and all, those, all those issues of equality, including up to same-sex uh, marriage and, and issues of abortion. Well, of course, a lot of unionists in Northern Ireland would argue that today, within Northern Ireland, Republicans aren't showing them the generosity that they deserve. I, I would, I would concur with that entirely. I mean, I did. I, I, I would agree that Republicans have, to an extent, Republicans have, have particularly in places where they have been, where they are in, are in, are in a majority, have taken on the, the, the same mantle that unionism did. Um, uh, in, in terms of, of positions of power, and that is that that is part of the argument. That's one of the reasons why I, I was very taken with 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 Shimon's Smallman's book, uh, a shared place, because he 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 argued very strongly in that book that um, if there is to be a change in the constitutional nature, the danger is that it is fifty plus one and that therefore you end up with a minority in the island of Ireland, similarly as you ended up with a minority in Northern Ireland in 1920, and they are disaffected and, and um, are, 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 are uh, a, a potential
potential danger to the new constitutional status. However, if you take a different view, you're effectively saying that a unionist vote is worth more than a Republican or nationalist vote because for one side the requirement is a, a simple majority and on the other side it's uh, an uphill majority. And how can you achieve a majority of unionists that believe in destroying the union? I don't really follow that one. Well, I don't think you necessarily have to. I mean, Malin doesn't argue that you have to have a majority of unionists. What he does argue is that you have to have a sufficient a number of unionists. And I think uh, if I would take an analogy back to um, another change process that we had to undergo, which was the change in policing. Policing, if it, if it, is, if it is to be effective, uh, and we can see that through the current, current crisis, um, it, it needs to be policing by consent rather than by force. And one of the big changes that had to occur in the policing from the um, uh, old RUC to the current PSNI was a whole changes in structures, whole changes in, in ethos, uh, changes in symbols, and also the whole changes in the recruitment process so that there was a specialized recruitment process to uh, bring about an increase in the number of people from the Catholic and nationalist community into the PSNI. Now, we can argue that how effective or uneffective that has been in that the numbers inside the police are still not uh, still do not reflect the makeup of the of the population, but I think we need to look at uh, ways that that, that 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 we do that in order um, uh, b before we actually come to a point of a referendum. I think we need to um, have the discussion about what the new Ireland would look like, and have discussion uh, in the same way as. The, uh, in the Republic, those discussions took place over the um, same-sex marriage referendum and over the divorce referendum, particularly over, sorry, not the divorce referendum, the abortion referendum, particularly over the abortion referendum, uh, where there developed a consensus across the island about what was what was on offer, and that only then do you reach the position of having a referendum on any future. So in other words, you know what is possible. Um, and, but I think also from a unionist point of view that uh, it needs to be recognized for unionists to enter into those conversations. They need to, it needs to be recognized that they are entering into them um, in a position where they, can, where they can come out the other end and say, no. Um, if they go in knowing that they're going to lose and whether it's 5-0 or 3-2, is not a way for those conversations to take place. But you're touching on something there, Will, which is very interesting, which is perhaps a cultural difference between South and North that's developed over the decades, which is there's a willingness in the South to engage in a, a really serious conversation about issues that can be very dangerous and very threatening, such as reproductive rights and uh, same-sex marriage. Yet, perhaps in the North, while people have the arguments, they don't have the discussions and conversations about those dangerous topics. I would agree that, 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 there is, that there has been that tendency in the North. But I would also point out there have been occasions when we have managed to do it, uh, the Upsal Commission being one, uh, where very difficult conversations were, were take, it took place. And they took place at a community and at a... Um, local level with with 
groups and, and enable the people to have those types of conversations. You would need to remind me what the Upsall Commission was. The Upsall I... Commission was a, uh, it, it was, um, the person who worked on it was Andy Pollock, and it held community discussions um, uh, across uh, Northern Ireland. Um, wasn't it pre-ceasefires pre or post-ceasefires, more pre-ceasefires? early 90s, 1993, around about then, and it was a, was a series of discussions which enabled, which basically said, what would peace look like? And your conversation that you're engaged in has reached the conclusion that a constitutional change would be beneficial. Why is that? I, 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 I haven't reached a conclusion. That it, I, what, I, what I've reached is, I've reached the position of saying that someone from my background, I could see myself voting for a united Ireland or for a new Ireland if the if what was an offer was beneficial and what would it look like it well it would look like um, first of all there would need to be uh, uh, there would still need to be a devolved legislation inside devolved legislature inside inside um, inside Northern Ireland so we'd be looking at a federated structure We'd be looking at a federated structure. There would need to be a recognition of, of the position of uh, the monarch. Um, and also there would need to be, uh, as there was with the linkage of uh, the unification of Germany, there would need to be a guarantee of, of funding for a period of time until, until the two economies uh, got, got together. A further thing I think that would need to be discussed and need to be looked at before it occurs is the issue of, of dealing with the past, because the, one of the big difficulties for, and, and I think this is relevant, it's not just also how we deal with uh, the past uh, in terms of the conflict from uh, through the 1960s, the 1970s up to the 1990s, there's also the issue of the, as was demonstrated by the, the row that occurred in the Republic over uh, the RIC um, uh, around Christmas time, uh, that the, the past of the 1920s also needs to, needs to uh, be, be looked at. I mean, Fergal Keane's book, uh, uh, Wounds, which describes the issue in North Kerry and, and how you had Irish families who were as he describes them, um, Irishmen, just as much Irishmen, one, one family being in the RIC and the other families being in the IRA, um, how one acknowledges what occurred it, through, through, through those periods also needs to be dealt with because one of the big difficulties for families, and I think of families close to me here in, 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 in South Armagh, families who, who lost relatives uh, and who had served in the in the security forces either in the RUC or the EDR. Um, if they see um, a new structure as providing a total victory for the people who murdered their relatives, that is going to be something that is too far for them. That raises two very interesting questions, Will, one of which is how we can avoid that sense of triumphalism and how we create that sense of generosity from both communities where it's been lacking in the past. But also what you're saying, in a sense, is, I think, a, tra a challenge to 
where we've got to in accepting that rather than be, there being one objective view of history, there are two different narratives of history which have to both be respected. I think what you're saying is a challenge to that view of how we treat history. Yes, and I wouldn't say that there are two narratives. I said there are many narratives. Mm. And are, one of the problems, one of the difficulties is that, 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 all, that, that all the various narratives are, can be seen as, as true to to the, 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 the people that, that, that have heard them. And I, I, I've, um, I've looked at conflicts across a number of areas, and the ones where I think people have um, dealt with it best is where at least people are prepared to hear the other narrative and not to immediately dismiss it. I, don't, um, I, I often think what we're very good at is telling stories of what they did to us we're not very good at listening to what we did to them, and we certainly haven't reached the point where we're prepared to tell the story of what we did to them. And one of the things that I've heard that's resonated with me when I've interviewed people is the willingness of some people who have reflected on our history in the Troubles have said, well, it's not people, it's not just the people who are engaged in um, physical force activities that actually have to consider their actions, but also those who encouraged them, that supported them, and gave them, if you like, uh, emotional succor? Yeah, there are acts of commission and acts of omission. You can, be, you can be, an act of omission is where you didn't stand up and say, look, what you said is just wrong. You should not be treating that person that way. Um, and, and, and so I, there, you don't even have to be a person who threw a stone you can be the person who cheered the person who threw the stone. So how do we how do we change the the culture, the context, and create that greater generosity of spirit, that willingness to see things from the point of view of people from other backgrounds? I think uh, I think actually in in some areas we are doing it, and we're doing it through things like the arts and through uh, the position of dialogue. And I mean, I, I through the work that I've been involved in. I have seen many examples of situations where people from very differing backgrounds have been prepared to listen and talk and to hear the stories from the other side. Um, and I think that sometimes, actually, uh, the community is further ahead than the politicians are. Now, I recognize that that is not the case in... Um, in, in, in the most deprived areas, it's not in the case sometimes in areas where the degrees of segregation, etc., remain as high as they did. I mean, that's the, the piece of research that, um, that was carried out uh, was, and was published in The Guardian at the time of the anniversary of the IRA ceasefire that showed that the degree of segregation in Belfast, uh, the areas that had suffered the greatest amount of deprivation were still suffering the deprivation and had no peace dividend. But if I look at the community that I live in, here in, 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 in South Armagh, I do see a mixing and a sharing and a, a coming together of people, um, certainly in terms of the economy and certainly in terms of, of socialising in a way which was certainly did not occur through the period of the conflict. Now, that doesn't mean that they're sitting down and openly talking to each other about the hurts of the past, but it 
at least does mean that they are, they do have respect for each other. Now, I should make a declaration here that both you and I and also the Hollywood Trust that is uh, broadcasting these podcasts are all involved in the Peacebuilding Academy, which is seeking to bring communities together. But that brings together a fairly narrow group of people. So how can we engage a wider part of society in those conversations of reconciliation? The only way I can consider, can think doing is, is, is that we keep trying to draw in people who have not been not participated in the in the in 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 in, in, in the past, and that's um, it's a very long and a very slow process. Um, but as I say, I think that um, the, the the evidence that I would have, which is totally anecdotal, I mean I haven't done any survey on it or anything like that, but just I know from 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 um, the community around here the way the segregation that used to exist uh, i mean it used to be that if one was getting work done and the first person who came to the place to carry out the work was from one community then all the other people that came to assist all the subcontractors all the other people that appeared were of that same community mm. now that is no longer the case so that draws us to back to the two big questions, one of which is how we create that generosity of spirit amongst communities that might perhaps be too triumphalist, and secondly, how we address the concerns of loyalist communities and wider unionism that are unwilling to engage in a future conversation. Well, I think that there, there are two, two, two things. Just the, the changes in that have occurred uh, in in the site over the past ten years, um, which has created a more liberal, um, social socially liberal society, have had knock-on effects within side the wider community in Ireland. The implications of um, the, the recognition that the economy, particularly in agriculture. Is um, is an all island economy, um, the, um, and and also the current crisis where we are more aware of what is occurring or right across this island uh, in terms of the health of people, and indeed the um, the degree of the, the, the potential degree of, of greater health cooperation. Those types of exchanges have caused a, uh, a, a, a very big difference. Uh, to give an anecdotal example, a number of years ago, once uh, an evening in September, I went to a meeting with a group from um, senior arrangement in, in County Armagh, and I was, we were sitting in, the, in their office and we were chatting about where we'd all been on holiday. And I recognised that every one of us in that room had flown out of Dublin Airport. Now, those senior orangemen would never, 20 years ago, would never have flown out of Dublin Airport. So those changes that have, that have occurred, they do take place slowly. What was it he said about, yes, but the, the change of the, the small incremental change, and I think that People are being prepared to look at an all-island context in a way in which certainly they didn't 30 years ago. 
Yes, I mean, the, the two illustrations of that, I think, are both not just the impact of Brexit, but also the, the fact that the government in the Republic engaged in a, a more comprehensive, more realistic risk planning, uh, risk management process, but also with COVID-19, that the Irish government seems to have had a, not only a better risk management approach than the British government, but also one which has gained recognition and endorsement by many unionists in Northern Ireland. Yes, exactly. I mean, if one looks on Twitter, I mean, the fact that somebody like Jimmy Bryson praises Leo Varadkar's speech. Mm, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that, that, that uh, and I think Alex Kane made a, made a comment too about... Um, uh, a unionist who, would, who he said he said it he said it through gritted teeth, uh, not not Alex Kent, but the unionist. Um, he, he, he even was my T-shirt. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I mean, it, it, one of the it, it's extraordinary, you know. Sometimes what a crisis, what a, what a how a crisis can change um, situations, and we've had two. We've had Brexit, and, and it is still unresolved, and and we now have. We now have the COVID virus, and um, and yes, the difference between the two governments um, has been well. I mean, because both of them are coming from a, a, a fairly right-wing um, economic um, position initially, um, and um, but yet uh, the, the 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 southern government yes has been seen as being uh, uh, more open and and also. That the figures seem to suggest that the South is actually doing better. And also, I think perhaps one might say that uh, naturally there has to be an all-Ireland perspective in terms of health management yeah. uh, within Ireland. Yet the feeling in Northern Ireland amongst many communities is that London has ignored the issues of and the, uh, the challenges of Northern Ireland being part of physically a different geography. Well, I mean, we're... we're... If you even look at the, I don't know why this is, but if you even look at the stats that they mm. put up on the on the on the um, um, monthly or the daily thing from from um, Whitehall, quite often Northern Ireland isn't there. Mm. Mm. And we, uh, I, I mean, I, I think uh, so. I mean, the 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 fact that we are uh, unionism has always known that that really it isn't. Um, Despite all its protestations, it, that it isn't really uh, part of the, the single nation that they keep craving about. I mean, you will see um, people from the DUP saying things like, "Oh, it's lovely to be in the nation's capital when they're in London." <laughs> they keep talking about the nation. Uh, it was a it was a phrase I'd never heard actually used in that way. But I mean, they they, they that to an extent is is them almost whistling against what they know in, inside themselves. It's why they shout no surrender, because it, it goes back to the fact that the Mountjoy sat outside the boom and allowed the people of Derry, um, the citizens inside the walls, to starve for a while long before it broke the boom, and that, 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 that they were left on their own. And that, that, that knowledge is, is, um, is almost within the DNA of unionism. So, Will, let, as we draw this to an end, let's go back to the beginning, which is what, for you, inspires the idea that Irish unity could be a good thing? What is it that you would like to see that new nation that we need to talk about? What is it that it should reflect and, and look like? 
it should be socially liberal, it should be outward-looking, European, and um, be multicultural in also in its embracing of the, the variety of cultures that now exist in this island. Uh, and it should be in a position able to, to reflect the diversity that John Hewitt described about being both Irish and British and European. And what would it look like economically? Economically, um, it will have input. Because it's European, it will have investment from other countries coming in and using it as a, as a base for, for, um, uh, for their European, European structures. Um, and it, it uh, may need um, a, a higher level of social investment uh, within its um, for its health and social services in those areas than, than has existed heretofore, certainly in the Republic. And what you're saying really is that in the same way that German reunification was supported by EU investment, you would expect reunification of Ireland or unification of Ireland, if one prefers the phrase, uh, to be backed by European Union money, perhaps through the European Investment Bank, but also perhaps United States investment. One would, one would hope so, and, you, and also um, there may be a position where the British government pays a dowry for a certain number of years. Yeah. Will Glendening, thank you very much indeed. That's very, uh, very enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Will. Okay, thanks to Will there for having that conversation with you, Paul. Paul, interesting there around triumphalism and generosity and creating a space for generosity whilst avoiding triumphalism, I think, are, are going to be really important when we come to conversations about the future of this place. Absolutely, uh, and that we need inclusivity. And I think, actually, one of the points that I drew that was, I thought, very significant and interesting is that we have this debate... Um, disagreement over whether we should have a single narrative explaining the past of uh, Northern Ireland or whether there should be two narratives and, and we'll make it the point that there need to be lots of different narratives we have to recognise that there's lots of different stories, mm. it's much more complex than simply listening to two authorised views of the past you know, that everyone has a story and everyone needs to give forward their voice, and also not just those that were participants in the struggle, the yeah. other people as well. Yeah, that's it. And Wool's view on what a future Ireland could look like was really interesting, and it, it, that is likely to be a shared Ireland of, of some shape or form, but I think that's a, a, a queer distance of travel, if you like, when, when you look at where the conversation will have started for him. That's right, absolutely. I mean, but it's not unconditional support for Irish unity. Yeah. It's saying if the conditions are right. And that, again, comes back to this question about whether there's sufficient generosity of spirit, that actually whether you can have a shared place, hmm. whether you can actually share your life with your neighbours. Um, so you know, what does a new island look like and how do we get there? Okay, well, well that's a, a burning question for more than just Will, I'm sure. <laughs> Yourself included, Paul. I think you've written a couple yes. of books on the subject at this point. <laughs> okay, well, look, that's it for this episode. Um, we, As I mentioned earlier on there, we only have three episodes left in this second series, so be sure to complete the collection and listen to all three. So thanks to Paul. Thanks to Will for taking the time to meet with us. Thanks to Emer Doherty for production support and our funders, the Community Relations Council. And we'll talk to you again soon.
Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.